Hey up friends, how's it going? It's Matty listening to the Looking Sideways Action Sports podcast, the show where I try and uncover the best stories in action sports and other related endeavours. Thanks for listening to and or downloading this episode and I hope you enjoy it. So this episode is going to be part one of my special two-part Huntington Beach omnibus and there's a few reasons for this really. Firstly because well I'm in Huntington Beach as I speak, self-styled Surf City USA and I've been here for a few days now. In fact recording this from my uh, balcony overlooking the pier itself and very atmospheric it is too. And the second reason is because my guests for this episode, Craig Peterson and Kevin Norton and for episode 78, the great Herbie Fletcher, have long associations with Huntington Beach and still live just up the coast. So it seemed fitting to tie these two episodes together into one consecutive package, especially because they describe extraordinary surfing careers that follow completely different paths. And because as regular listeners will know, well, I love an omnibus and it's been a while. So the HB omnibus it is. And so on to my guest this week, And let me tell you, I've been pretty excited about this one in the lead up to the trip. My guests this week are surfing's Lewis and Clark, like I said at the top, Craig Peterson and Kevin Norton. Two surfers who embarked upon one of the great odysseys of exploration in surfing history, as you're going to hear. They were brought up in this part of Orange County, but as soon as they were old enough, they hit the road and spent over a decade exploring the world, looking for waves during the golden age of surf travel and exploration. It was an impossibly romantic, massively influential mission that saw them travel across Central and South America, Europe and Africa in the search for uncrowded waves, documenting the entire thing as a photography and writing duo for Surfer magazine. And this is a period that was incredibly influential in surfing, as Matt Warshaw put it in a recent thing about the Joe for Surfer, in which he said, we justly enshrined them as the twin saints of hardcore surf travel. Jim Banks, Timmy Turner, Kepo Acera, all the rest of those friendly, resourceful, board bag toting nomads with battered passport and no return ticket, Craig and Kevin's salty head spawn, all of them. And I got a measure of their influence the night before I went to meet them when I was interviewing Greg Long for an episode of my forthcoming Type 2 series. And he frothed like a grommet when I told him I was meeting them and asked me to tell him that he'd been a major influence on his own life in surfing. So there you go. These boys definitely are uh, the real deal. And I know I say this every episode, but I do really implore you to head over to my website, www.wearelookingsideways.com for this one to check out the show notes where you're going to find some of Craig's incredible imagery from this period and get a flavour for just what we're talking about. Now, I first heard about Craig and Kevin through my close friend Chris Moran, actually, when he was researching a massive project on the history of surfing he was working on. And I ended up writing a couple of stories about them for magazines about 15 years ago, I reckon. And I remember at the time how helpful and basically tickled they were that this random English kid was on the phone from the UK breathlessly asking them to recount their story so when I knew that the California mission was definitely on I got back in touch with Craig and arranged to meet him and record an episode so that's what me and Owen Tozer did we headed down to Kevin's place to sit down and we went over the whole thing and what a joy it truly was for a proper geek like me there was the conversation itself of course and there's also the chance to check out Kevin's place which is full of amazing memorabilia and stories in every corner and the thing about Craig and Kevin is that while people who know their surf history are aware of who they are, 
The story is a little unsung really, and they do deserve to be better recognized, which is why I was so determined to track them down during my trip around California, and why I've spent the best part of a year stalking them and persuading them to come on the show and share the story with me. Now, I'm going to leave it there and crack on with the episode. Really hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Here it is, my episode with Craig Peterson and Kevin Norton, The Search for the Perfect Wave. Enjoy. Like I was saying, it's going to be our first cup of, cup of tea. Been uh, on kind of American coffee the whole time. So yeah, yeah. Good, good cup of Barry tea. Um, how are you guys? Hey, great. Good. Yeah, yeah. Good. It's a Barry's tea day. A bit it, of clouds. We have a bit of rare weather here or some rain. A bit of rain in California. It's rare enough. Yeah, well, you've had a, quite a rainy winter, right? By, by the sounds of it. By the sounds of it, yeah, here. Yeah, we've had more rain from the sky than we have had in the surf. It's been a couple months now for us to actually be surfing. Really? Yeah. It's been that bad. Yeah, with the, with the runoff going out into the water. and. Well, what happens here when it rains is like a giant toilet flush for all the rivers heading, going out to the ocean. And the, the signs go up, you know, don't go near the water. Yeah. That never happened when I was a kid. Right. That's what the reality is now, the days, you know, where we, how we live now, it's, it's a bit environmental issues are everywhere. Even when it rains, you think it's a contradiction of rain is a cleansing thing, but rain is also a big flush for all the rivers, yeah. to throw all the toxics out into the ocean, right in the lineup where surfers are floating around. Yes. Yeah. There's in fact a great story. It's real quick. Uh, down in Del Mar, they were holding a surf contest one winter and, uh, uh, they had to clear out all the contestants because there was too many rattlesnakes wow. swimming back in. It got it flushed <laughs> out of the rivers, and now yeah. you've got this cold, wet, angry rattlesnake horde, you know, coming in on shore. So, uh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, you don't get that where I'm from, definitely. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's really great to meet you guys. I mean, I've been uh, fanning out for years, really. Um, cool. Because the story's so great. Um, so, firstly, thanks for f- thanks for seeing us. You know, yeah, no real, problem. Real, real yeah. pleasure. Um, I, I mean, it'd just be great to start at the beginning, really, if uh, if that's all right. Because um, you you both from this part of California, right? <laughs> We're both from Southern California, and it just coincidentally, we both had the travel bug at an early age. And I think it's something that not everybody has. Some people have it in them to want to travel and explore the travel bug, I guess, for lack of a better phrase, you yeah. call it. And then other people are just fine where they are. But we both had the travel bug. Before we even met, I'd been traveling, and Craig had obviously was chomping at the bit to get out and do some traveling. So it's kind of funny how, you know, like attracts like. You get attracted to people who have same interests yeah. through fate or through whatever circumstances. It brings these you know, brings people together who have common interests. Yeah. That's what happened with us. Yeah. And, um, you know, I got started in, in on uh, photography at a very early age, you know, thanks to my dad, who was a photographer in World War II, and I borrowed his camera. And uh, the, uh, uh, you know, when uh, I lent him, he lent me his cameras, he said I needed to read two photography books. And so I actually did read those. And so he let me take his camera down to Huntington Beach Pier and then by the senior year of my high school, uh, in high school, I got lucky enough to become a staff photographer for Surfer Magazine. This wow. was right when I was like 15 and a half, 16 years old. Right. So how did that come about? Well, I was just taking pictures like everybody and, you know, submitting them into the magazines. And then uh, uh, 
you know, they, you know, started to see some. And then at that point, uh, Surfer had said, well, you know, Jeff Devine is leaving for Hawaii uh, now. So he's going to be our Hawaii photographer. So we need somebody in California. Would you like to be our California photographer? Wow. Okay. So it was like, wow, this is really cool. Sure. What do I, what, what happens? And he yeah. said, well, we'll give you all the film you need and we'll pay for gas mileage. Just go up and down the coast looking for good swells and surfers. Right. And then they beat, didn't they bequeath you Ron Stoner's lens? That's right. Yeah. Wow. Ron Stoner's. Ron Stoner's, which is like the holy grail yeah, surf yeah. photographers in. Right. Get a 650 lens. 650 century that. lens. Right. Yeah. And so that definitely improved the, uh, you know, the quality of the photos that I was getting. Right. And so I was their photographer for, uh, you know, here in California. But then we were looking at so much of uh, California being uh, so crowded, we started thinking, a friend and I in high school said, well, let's graduate high school early and let's drive down to someplace like Central America. Right. You know, because there's maybe uncrowded waves there. And that's when friends at Huntington told us, oh, you got to meet Kevin. You know, he's been down there already. So uh, right. they introduced so us. That was the connection. Yeah. I'd already had some traveling under my belt. You know, when I was a Grom coming up through... Uh, grade school and high school surfing and looking at the surfer magazines and that was really the only way to find out what was going on out in the surf world there was a couple of surf magazines right surfer was the main one and i mean it was great to see all the hawaii photos and all that but what really got my interest were the all the travel yeah articles which there weren't many you know, maybe once or twice a year that have some exploration in south africa or something but that's what i really glommed onto and yeah. what I found an interest in and so I had a, just an interest in traveling from right from the early age. And like I said, in 69, when I was over in Ireland with my parents, I went down and um, surfed in Tremor with the uh, nascent surf scene happening in Ireland. Wow. There were two surf scenes really happening simultaneously in Ireland. One was right, right in the south around Tremor and uh, Waterford uh, with Hugh O'Brien and the boys. And then the other was with the far north, oddly enough, with um, Davey Govan and Alan Duke and and uh, some of the other guys, Martin Lloyd up there, Ted Alexander. So these were the two main surf scenes, and then there was a little smattering of surfing in between around Rosnalla with the Barry Britton. A few guys around La Hinch and Claire were surfing, but it was really sort of all thin and scattered. But I was hung out with Huey and the boys. Then we went up to uh, my with my parents to... Um, the north to see some friends and we passed through Bundoran saw an incredible peak out there in the middle of the day with empty waves deserted peak right at the peak of Bundoran it was yeah. breaking when we passed, went That's through amazing. town and it wasn't a center around right what year and I was thought it? that was in 69 69 I thought wow that's a wave to come back for yeah right but then uh I came actually did come back in 70 but by that time I was uh keen on going down to France right because surfer had come out with this article about uh, Mark Martinson and Billy Hamilton surfing and around Biarritz, and that was the the happening surf scene then, and the ways at Labar and all these places. And I said, "Oh, that's where I'm going." So, I saved my money, got my summer vacation, and just to show you, illustrate how it is with some people have the bug and some don't. You know, at that time I was like 16 or 17, and all my buddies, we all said, yeah, we're all going to France. Let's go to France. You know, we're all going to go this summer and surf there. Yeah. When it came time to go, I was the only one actually. You were the only one. <laughs> following through on it and going. So I went ahead and got on the plane, went to Ireland. That's actually when I surfed with Huey and the boys. It wasn't it wasn't in 69, it was in 70. Yeah. The, uh, so then I surfed with them for a bit. And then I hit, took off on my own and uh, took the ferry across to England, the ferry to France, took the train down. And... Um, 
really got to start hung out for the summer and surfed France and went over and surfed in Spain and camped out in the woods near La Bar. Amazing. And I would go at night. There was a youth hostel there, and I'm, I would go and clean the tables after dinner. Right. And what I was doing was eating the leftovers. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. But they yeah, let me do that. It. Yeah. They let me do that. They kind of knew I was camped out down in the woods, and that's how I ate, and that's how I lived, and uh, surfed great ways in and came back. And then that winter, I went to Hawaii stayed on the north shore for uh, just about a month and served some great ways then but i thought you know what this scene's already been covered so well right There's so many surfers here i'd like to go somewhere where no one's been were, were you writing at this time as well then no no i wasn't writing anything i was again i was still like 17 yeah so you were just in it was just the traveling was i was just about, kind of getting yeah. my feel for the road yeah yeah as what right. it was so to speak and then just i was getting out of high school uh i went up to surf up in oregon and washington uh, a famous wave up there called Seaside Reef, the real local spot, but it was a great left. Yeah, I had a friend who was up in Portland, and so I drove up to see him, and we went out and hung out and surfed there for a month. And that by that point, I was fully hooked in. This is it. I just love the every aspect of the travel and well, getting a, lot, a new wave. It's a lot of miles, time. isn't it? At, at a young age, you know, you're you're already saying you're seventeen, eighteen. Yeah. You've already been like all over Europe, all over the Western Seaboard. I mean, it's yeah, so so this is when you everyone's like, right, Kevin, mm-hmm. Kevin, Kevin's the traveler. You guys right. need to meet. Yeah, right. yeah. So we they introduced us on the beach at uh, Huntington Beach. I already kind of knew of Kevin because he was one of the best surfers at Huntington. Yeah. So I'd already been taking some photos of him and stuff. So uh, they introduced us, and I had explained to Kevin that uh, hey, a friend of mine and I are thinking about going down to El Salvador to go surfing. Because at that time, the only reporting that would have been done was an old Bernie Baker photo of right. him sitting on a, on a bluff overlooking Zunes All. He said, there's got to be good waves down there. But in the traveling ethos of the time, you know, Kevin was kind of cagey with the information. He was kind of like, well, <laughs> yeah, maybe there, you might, you might get some waves. Maybe yeah. I might be down there. Right. It's guys, so funny because yeah. now when, you know, you tell everybody everything and post it on YouTube and yeah. the maps Instagram, and everything. Back yeah. then it was the total opposite. We're yeah. like, mum's the word. You know, if you hear it through the coconut grapevine, you're lucky. Yeah. Otherwise, you know, nobody knew anything and nobody was going to divulge you any information. That's why all these great surf spots were kept a secret. You know, guys were surfing at uh, in Mexico at some of the great waves, and guy, nobody was really surfing in Central America, I must say, at that time. But nobody knew about the guys who were surfing in Mexico because everybody kept a lid on it. Yeah. And we pushed beyond. Like I said, my first trip down to Central America was before I met Craig, and I drove my Volkswagen van down. I just turned 18. Yeah. It seemed like a good idea. <laughs> so drove down to El Salvador, and I just couldn't believe it. I was scoring. Right. This is when I was... Uh, really discovering how many great ways were out there that no one even heard of. Like when I went to France, it was known, you know, everybody knew Hawaii and that. Yeah. But going to Central America, going to El Salvador, there's here's a spot nobody would heard of, La Libertad. There's only a handful of surfers around and the water was warm and it was just a great place. And that opened my eyes to the potential. Yeah, no doubt. Right. Yeah. And uh, for me in high school, it was like, you know, you're sitting there in geography class, you know, and you're going, oh, man, look at the, all the blue ocean out there and all yeah. those coasts. There's got to be waves, you know, West Africa, you know, around India and South America and stuff. So that's when a friend and I started Hatch a Plan. Right. And in Central America. And then Kevin had said, well, if you make it down to this one little town called Zunzal, you know, look me up and, you know, I can help get you squared away. Right. So, so you made it hard. You were like, yeah, yeah I wasn't making can, it easy. If you can, if you can make it, I'll see you down there. Yeah. 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 
Right. Yeah. So is this the start of the kind of the partnership when you guys met then? Down well, there? talk about how when you showed up in Zoom's all. Uh, oh, night, yeah. Yeah. So anyway, this, this other friend of mine named Greg Carpenter and I from high school, we graduated high school early, drove down in the spring because we, you know, that was just the time we could go in a little Volkswagen bug, you know, down there. And uh, we got down there and, and it, Pan American Highway and it's getting starting to get twilight time and we find this sign Zoon's all on the Pan American Highway. And so he said, it's all jungle around here. There's no <laughs> town, you know. So we just pulled off to the side of the road and started shouting, Kevin, Kevin, you know. <laughs> and I was we're right. waiting yeah. and all of a sudden we hear, oh, yeah. It's so not like me and you today, like me on Google Maps. Oh, I'll be yeah, here in yeah. like 15 yeah. minutes. Right. <laughs> I hear these voices in the jungle. Someone calling my name at night, <laughs> 9 o'clock at night. Wow. <laughs> we walk out That's from hilarious. the jungle, the little house we were staying in. Yeah. The yeah. mother surfers in the back off the road and there was craig where am i Brilliant. yeah yep. yeah and you so, made it you made it so so yeah, we you passed yeah yeah you so passed we, the test yeah so we we passed that test and then we started uh just surfing and hanging out there we were in central america on that trip for about three or four months and uh you know by that time kevin was already starting to go to uh college and he was in a you know english literature classes and stuff and a writer so um and i was the photographer and so we'd take pictures and we said well let's do an article we'll send it back to surfer ma magazine yeah. you know we'd had to mail it back from yeah. surfer from the post office and stuff but we didn't name anything where we were at and we gave the uh, surf breaks that we were surfing and we said well how are we going to call this surf break here you know we got to disguise it somehow so we thought well let's name them after our girlfriends or girls that we want to meet when we get back Brilliant. back in california <laughs> yeah. so that's michelle's and you know came to name those places so that uh when we were back in the states we could go to a party or something like that and said yeah you know uh yeah you know if you're really nice <laughs> to me i might be able to name a surf spot after you brilliant brilliant so this is um so how long was this initial exploration trip like so you were in central america so how long we were down there for like what three or four months and mm -hmm. then as we wrote the first series of articles it was three articles. Uh, that three articles for Surfer. We were in Salvador for a couple of months, and then uh, I thought, well, hey, let's go down and see what's happening in Costa Rica. Yeah. But I still kind of had the lone traveling itch in me, and I said, I'm going to hitchhike down on my own, just see what it's like. Yeah. So I left ahead of Craig and some, a couple of friends, and I hitchhiked on down to Costa Rica and started looking around for ways there. Kind of hard to do when you just have a boarded backpack and no yeah, wheels. Yeah, right. And there aren't many roads, and you're relying on buses, but in in rides, you know. But yeah. I, it, I somehow managed, and ended up at a couple of good surf breaks. One was Punta Arenas, and then about three weeks later, uh, you guys showed up. Yeah, after I was down there, they suddenly showed up at Punta Arenas. And right this there, I was. I was sleeping on the beach. Right. <laughs> That's right. right. We saw them there, and we started uh, exploring around those coasts. And again, nobody knew where any, except for Punta Arenas, you know, where any other breaks were. Yeah. So we had brought uh, nautical charts with us. Right. You know, I was, was going to ask actually how you started to, because you know these mm. days obviously there's a, there's a whole technological science behind it isn't there you know there's a lot of tools but back in those days it's literally maps and word of mouth i imagine yeah right? i just saw that's what was nautical maps and word of mouth yeah yeah because the nautical maps what you could do is you could zone zone zoom in pretty closely you know on different yeah. maps to get what's the coastline doing here so you could see where there was going to be like steep cliffs and a deep bottom unlikely to be surf there so you'd look more for like river mouths or points with a shallow area there and you say this might be good here or might be good there so we'd mark x's on the map and then try to drive there to get to them right it's really primitive i mean it's like it's stone amazing, age though. compared to what what's going on now it's the dream though isn't it i think that's why the stories kind of you know still resonate so much now yeah. isn't it because you just can't redo it now 
right? It's funny because there's a, it, it, that goes with a kind of a general philosophy uh, about travel and that it is that sometimes it's better to know nothing. It's yeah. better to just like, we knew nothing. We were so You must have been blind. Naive. We yeah. were, you know, now everyone knows almost too much before they go. But back then, it's like the less you know, the better, the more fun and adventurous it gets. <laughs> if we knew how scary and dangerous it could have been, we might not have gone. But right. we just knew so little. Ignorance was bliss. Ignorance was bliss. Yeah. And that it truly was in that sense. Yeah. So can you describe some of the, some of the, the discoveries that you made like on the because you know if you're describing this approach of like looking at maps and you must have had some amazing experiences where it worked out and you found like you know these amazing waves that no one knew about right well like in el salvador of course the, the great way was uh la libertad which we named punta roca that's still probably the best right hand point wave in central america you know you know it's been covered over and over and it still holds up as the wave yeah um and then in Costa Rica, you know, we landed at Tamarindo when there really wasn't a Tamarindo. It was sure. like a little shack on the beach and a, some palm trees. And yeah. there was no town of Tamarindo. And yet there was great waves there, great reef waves and little beach break and sandbar reefs. Uh, and we just hung out there and surfed really nice waves around that whole area when it was completely pristine, totally uh, raw. Yeah. You know, like I said, it wasn't even a hotel. We slept on the beach. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And the interesting thing on that is, just as a little sidebar, is Kevin and I went back to Costa Rica, you know, about three years ago, and uh, it had been like 35 or 40 years since oh, wow. we'd been down right. there. So we yeah. said, well, let's try to get to Tamarindo because we that was... Go see it. It's Go called see Tamagringo it. now. <laughs> it's called Tamagringo, and, and there's like people hawking stuff, you know, it looks like Waikiki or something. Hey, gringo, you know, come here, I got this or I got right. that for you, you know, and yeah. it's like, wow. this Little surfboard pendants. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. And, yeah. and a little sidebar on that too is because a lot of people know about Costa Rica is... At that time, we weren't really looking for beach breaks so much as points. You sure. know? So we would pass by and we'd look at some beach breaks. We were trying to really hunt for river mouse and, and points. And uh, so some of those roads took us, you know, as, you know, way down into the jungle and trying to get down to the beaches. Sometimes we would, uh, you know, the road wouldn't go all the way, so we'd paddle down the rivers. You know, and then, you know, go to the beach, kind of check it out and paddle back up the river. Wow. Nobody told us about the crocodiles or anything I was going like to say, or the, yeah. or the crazy fish. Yeah. Come across. The freshwater crocodiles, we didn't even know about. Nobody told us. So it was right. sometimes, like I said, it pays to know. Yeah. <laughs> so, there's, so there's now a, a surf town there um, called Hako. Um, and uh, back then, you know, we had, this is when, you know, the police were, you know, fairly corrupt around the world and still, still are in a lot of places. But so anyway, we got pulled over by the police and they said oh you guys had, had run an ice cream truck off the road up in the mountains we're going to hold you here in the police station they were thinking they were going to give they, us a, they had uh, nothing better to do so they thought they were going to shake us down for some money well yeah they must they have been like who, who are these two yeah <laughs> yeah exactly so um they uh you know we said well okay we'll just hang out and wait you know right so we started you know hanging out they had to feed us we had the van parked <laughs> in the front of the police thing <laughs> we were teaching the, the guards how to play frisbee <laughs> frisbee uh, hanging out there when's the next meal yeah <laughs> exactly. after two days they said you guys get out of here <laughs> costing us money you don't have any money <laughs> get out of here money costing us money so. and of course at this time beach. yeah this time you know we're long-haired and i've long blonde hair and you know the world had been talking about hippies and here were these hippie Hippies in Costa Rica, you know, they're a bad influence on anything. Now, if you go to Hako, there's a statue in the town that 
thanks the surfers wow for coming to to costa rica and Jaco for making it what it is today making it yeah economic boom boom town statue of a surfer holding a board saying our appreciation goes out to all the surfers who have made put this town on the map except for kevin and craig yeah. <laughs> we got say. arrested here 40 years yeah, ago picture you guys in handcuffs <laughs> right brilliant <laughs> but we, there were waves there too we surfed there and there's a fun little beach break in, right it's right around the corner from uh Playa Hermosa, which was another fun, good beach break that's really popular now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, we got a lot of good beach breaks all over Costa Rica that were just, of course, empty. Yeah, yeah. So, and presumably at this point, you're kind of thinking, ah, oh, well, maybe this is something we can keep selling. Because, you know, the story is that it's like a 10-year odyssey, isn't it? That's the, that's the way that people tell it, where you're kind of writing well, stories for Surfer and sending mm-hmm. them back. So, was well, it was it like a... Was it just an organic thing that you just kept going and then you kept sending back stories? More or less, that's how it happened. An odd thing happened in that Surfer initially was very skeptical about us going to Costa Rica or El Salvador. What the hell, what other countries are there in Central America? Nobody even knew. Yeah, right. And But then it turned out, uh, strangely enough, they were surprised to see that uh, the articles were incredibly popular with the readers. Well, I bet. And uh, readers had never kind of been exposed to this kind of travel a story before where a couple of bumbling idiots with self-depreciating humor managed to find some good ways Speak in these for yourself. places, you know, and sending her back our dispatches. So it really resonated with the readers. And uh, the surfer said to us, wow, we're getting great. These are the best response we've had towards any uh, travel articles we've done. Right. Where do you guys want to go to next? What do you want to do next? We'll, we'll, we'll get you there. We can't promise we'll get you back, but... What? We'll get you there. So we're, what a gig. we're two. Yeah. What a gig for two people that they're stoked on traveling. So you got the map out, presumably. Got the map out. We said, hey, let's try uh, Morocco and the Canary Islands and West Africa. and Got to be surfed through gotta there. Got to be good some surf through there. And sure enough, there was. And then we wrote a whole series of articles uh, based upon those adventures. Ended up in uh, Barbados. And it was like, we were gone for like nine months. That was, and, yeah. Uh, covered a lot of ground in that time so yeah. did you start in the north you started in morocco made your way down on that trip well yeah i remember we were hitchhiking this time with one board so each you know so yeah. um that we didn't have a vehicle uh, on this first trip to west africa we did two trips to west africa but uh so we would catch a ferry from like uh morocco to the uh, canary islands and then the canary islands down to senegal and then from senegal we did some mammy wagon trips down into sierra leone you know, and then from, uh, I think it was, we had to go by boat from, from Dakar to uh, uh, the capital of Sierra Leone, Freetown. And then from there, more of the mammy wagon trucks further south into Liberia. Wow. And then, um, you know, we stayed mostly with Peace Corps volunteers along the way. And uh, we kept, you know, running into some hassles with the police, of course, and other locals who didn't understand what we were doing there. I mean, it was like, they either was two types of, of white people there yeah you know, we were either peace corps or cia right you know so it was like wow what are we gonna do and surfers so, yeah, yeah surfers. Surfers, you know? <laughs> so we would just say we're peace corps and they go right. oh, okay you know that's all right then and we traveled with a, a surfer magazine with us too a couple of surfer magazines so that when we got along those coasts of west africa run into a you know a fishing village or something you know we would show the fishermen you know we had good bonding with, with the fishermen because they understood we're riding waves and those are the things they fear the most yeah so we'd pull out the surfer magazines and show them like have you seen any waves like this you know like a good point break right we thought that was a brilliant idea sure 
but it didn't really work out that way because they just wanted to look at the bikini picture. <laughs> yeah. No, no, no. Back here to page 45 in this photo <laughs> and stuff. So. And were, you, were, you, were there any surfers around at all? Uh, in West Africa, no surfers. A uh, handful of local surfers in the Canary Islands. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then... Mostly Europeans in, uh, you know... In Morocco, I mostly Morocco. some Europeans. I guess Morocco had started to happen right around this yeah point. there were some uh, actually just some english surfers uh and some australians it was starting to happen in morocco then yeah it was that was part of the kind of the uh, it's funny how the surfer trail the migrant trail would start in um southern france around yeah. september that's when the season would come on be flat all summer then start to break in september uh hang out there in october in spain and then they'd migrate down through portugal these loose caravans, gypsy surfers, yeah. cross the straits into Morocco and being, you know, perched up in Morocco around November, December to get the winter waves down there yeah. when it's freezing cold up in France and Spain. And, and Morocco is kind of like, it's like Mexico, Baja. It's very, very similar as far as you look at it on a map, same latitude. And they uh, both have great waves, both spots. And so a lot, that's where the surfers would post up. Yeah. But even then, there are not many. I mean, we're talking about yeah, this is handful of surfers. You know, twelve surfers are are no more than that at anchor point. Yeah, I mean, this is why I'm asking about Morocco, really, because obviously everyone listening to this is gonna probably know know what it's like now, yeah. right? I mean, mm-hmm. I, I was there eighteen months ago, and it was. I mean, there must have been a hundred hundred guys. Yeah, a dozen surfers at anchor point. That yeah. was like normal. Yeah, that was we didn't expect to see any more than that and then we we went further south we said let's try to get as far south as we can right we went down to aglu mm-hmm. and there were no surfers there at all and it was a really nice wave there great wave there mm-hmm. and we we're there for christmas wasn't it, or something yeah right around christmas then. and we drove further south and but then, then we couldn't get too far because the the, there was yeah. the road gave out and then there was a, a bit of a war going on for the spanish sahara at that time right so it made it a little sketchy so we had to turn around but you know, after uh, we left uh, Anchor Point and headed south, we just didn't see other surfers. That was it. So you were the first to experience these areas, how to surf in, basically. Yeah, well, I guess we're thinking about it, we were, you know. Yeah. We were with Tito Rosenberg and his Land Rover, and he was just one of those incredibly intrepid explorers who, uh, the same frame of mind that we had, he, he just had the means. He had a great Land Rover. We were camped out on the beach and hitchhiking, but... Yeah, we soon became friends, and then we teamed up, and you know, had some great adventures with him, and that was a epic time mm-hmm. for us on our travels with. Tito. Yeah, the serendipity of travel yeah, is right. that uh, Tito had, was in Morocco. He outfitted his Land Rover in England, and then was driving south, planned to go to spend the winter in in Morocco, you yeah. know, in the desert. And uh, he was traveling with his girlfriend. Tito Rosenberg is a Brazilian yeah. surfer and shaper. Yeah, and. Uh, and uh, but his girlfriend came down with uh, I think it was hepatitis or something. I had to fly back from uh, Casablanca. Right. So he'd been driving from Casablanca all the way south, looking for hitchhikers to help share the gas price for him. Me and you boys. Yeah. Met us. Met us. <laughs> we were <laughs> wrapped up in camel hair blankets <laughs> yeah. at an Anchor Point. That's what we're sleeping point. at night. That's brilliant. Though, isn't <laughs> it? We didn't even have a tent. Yeah. Just wrapped up. Roll up in the blanket like a burrito in the beach. Yeah. Then unroll in the morning. A camel hair. Somebody had stolen his, uh, Kevin's uh, sleeping bag. Right. Point. You know, the theft in Morocco is yeah. pretty well legendary. Yeah. But uh, so anyway, he'd bought a, a one of those big uh, camel wool 
blankets from uh, the markets, and he'd roll up in that at night, you know, and roll them up on the beach, and then he'd sleep that way, and then in the morning I'd kind of kick the the roll, <laughs> right? <laughs> unroll them. <laughs> Brilliant. So where did you head after this? So you had you said you head down this like the coast, like so through the Spanish Sahara, down to Senegal, Sierra yeah, Leone, Liberia. We found one of the great ways of the world in in Liberia, one of the, at Cape Mounts, the mm-hmm. great left there. I think we were the first ones to surf that wave, I right. would say. And then we surfed in, through Ghana. We surfed some nice waves at Dick's Cove around there in Ghana. But it was getting to be mostly beach break through Ghana and Ivory Coast. So we headed back to Liberia and surfed uh, the surfed actually all through Liberia. There was other great waves we found in the south of the country, remember? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, yeah, uh, there were. We explored a lot around Liberia. It was, you know, it's, it's hard Senegal. to get to them. Hard yeah. to get these waves, you know. And so... Uh, you know, from that from that trip, we we really cut our teeth. It's travel teeth. We would, uh, you know, get to one place and kind of hole up there with our most of our our stuff, and then take smaller like backpacks with us or something to do a two or three day hike down the coast. Right. Yeah. Just walk down the yeah. coast yeah. with so our boards. Base. The effort was just tremendous to yeah. get to waves, to get to spots. You can't imagine really what it was like just trying to get anywhere near yeah. the coast. You know, you're in some washed out dirt road that may not even be passable depending right. on what tree or palm has fallen recently or what rain has happened and you you know you get there and four out of five times there'd be no waves you just get skunked yeah and right. just hoping for that fifth time when you do get a good wave yeah very very tough you know it's it would have been a lot easier just to go to hawaii and hang yeah. out at waikiki and watch the girls and surf the waves but that wasn't in our nature yeah and when you found it it must have made it worthwhile right yeah it did and that was a reward of course yeah and you mentioned the authorities like being a little bit suspicious of of you guys and like the the way that you dealt with that but did you have um did you have what was the local reaction like like from because obviously it must have been when you meet meeting these local communities they must just be like... Hey. Well, they just thought we were like magicians riding on these boards that they had never even heard about or didn't know what they were and riding on the water. They couldn't believe it. So they had no reference points whatsoever. No reference point. The kids, some of the kids were just wild because the youngest ones in some of these places in West Africa, we were the first white guys they'd seen. Yeah. That's how remote some of these villages were that sure. we went out to. And the older ones, they were just amazed... Uh, the authorities themselves were always skeptical. You know, it's the old thing with authority. What they don't know, they must be suspicious of. Yeah. You must be up to no good. <laughs> you know, especially Craig with the cameras and all that. And yeah, it was right. beyond their, yeah. beyond course, their yeah. sort of understanding that we would be there, you know, doing travel stories for Surfer Magazine and on a big adventure. Yeah. It was sort of out of their world of comprehension. Yeah. Yeah. But, I mean, it's, it's quite a cover story, right? Yeah. <laughs> But uh, all in all, it was really good uh, reception. I'm surprised at how little we worried about, you know, if we were going to get robbed or beaten or murdered or anything. We just never worried about yeah, that. Yeah, that, well, that's another and, question I was going to ask you. Really, like, was it was it was it scary? It's like no, a silly no. question, but you know, you've got to ask it. Really, yeah, it's it's not uh, not a silly question at all. It's like the early travelers. You know, we through the coconut grapevine, we hanging out with guys here and there, and somebody just passed through Afghanistan. They had a great time, no problems. So I don't want to say the world was more innocent then because it wasn't. But for a traveler at that time in the world, things were more innocent in the sense that it was safer to go to a lot of these countries that you would never go back to, you know, after we were there because of some of the events 
El Salvador would be a good example of yeah, all of the civil war and all that happened. Yeah. We were there at a bucolic time when it was still like this little sleepy little town. Yeah. Uh, just off the map and everything was idyllic. All that all that would change, of course, in the coming years and all that has changed dramatically. But back then, the world by and large, got it seemed like a pretty safe place to travel if you just had a backpack. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And did you find that the further you traveled, the more you kind of realized that people are fundamentally the same? And you know, will be generous to you when you when you rock up oh, absolutely. in a new place. Absolutely, yeah. Because that's that's one of the things I always find from you can get an impression from like a government, can't you, or the news or whatever. But it just tends to be like completely wrong. You know, you go you go somewhere and it's it's the people and they're, they're the same as everybody, aren't they? Basically. Yeah, I happen to think that yeah. uh, a, a good solution to solve a lot of the uh, world's problems would be to, uh, as far as like uh, fear of the other kind of a thing, would be that everybody from uh, high school before they entered college, it was mandatory for them to live in another place. Yeah. Either in another state or county or country or travel somehow before they enter, because then they would see that the people that, you know, that all around the world, pretty much they all yeah. want the basic kind of thing. And yeah, they want course. to have that yeah. connection to humanity and everything. Got the same struggles. Yeah. When you, and then I noticed there was a very little difference in the friendliness and compassion of people, the poor people, especially I would meet in, uh, in El Salvador and the people I would meet in West Africa, these villages, worlds apart, but very same kind of openness and friendliness uh, and warmth, you know, towards strangers. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we were the strangers and we always felt welcome wherever we went as strangers. Yeah. And a certain sense of curiosity too. It was nice. It must have been one Kevin, of the most rewarding parts. Yeah, it was, yeah. you know, Kevin was stranger than I was. <laughs> <laughs> but to get back to your earlier, earlier question, you know, the, the, the thrill of discovery of yeah. hunting for a perfect wave that nobody's ever surfed. That was what was really driving us. You yeah. know? So these walks along the coast for several days in West Africa, you know, you'd walk mm-hmm. along this long beach. It's hot, it's sticky, yeah. you get attacked by, you know, insects and stuff. You walk along the beach, you go, oh, there's a point up there. I wonder what's around that corner. You know, so you walk and it's like the, having that feeling of like, mm-hmm. how it must have been for any kind of early explorers, you know, your first surfer here to be on this beach probably, you yeah. know. But all in all, you know what that led to is one of our best times ever traveling. And that was back, we went, returned back to Europe after Africa and uh, the Caribbean and, and all Central America and all those places. And we were just so lucky and fortunate to tap into Europe right before the decades where the surf exploded, where it was just took off and everybody surfed. And I lived in Ireland then and we were lived in France Mid-70s. We're talking mid-70s, late-70s now. Right. And it was just like a golden time to be in these places because the big difference was the new warm water wetsuits came out. Yeah. So you could surf year-round now in France, in Ireland, in Spain, and they had the, you know, the short boards were getting better all the time. The equipment was there, and it all came together. It was before the masses caught on. Yeah. You know, when I first went to Ireland with my board and was living there, I had customs agents. What's this thing? Or is this yeah, a yeah. airplane wing? Is this a weapon for the IRA? What are you doing with this? Where are you going? Yeah. Nobody knew anything about it. You can't drive anywhere in Ireland now without seeing boards on the roof. But I was going around and uh, 
I was almost giddy with laughter thinking, God, I've got this freaking country to myself Yeah, <laughs> as far as for driving around to surf in new spots. I yeah. was hoping that I would run into somebody else that I could surf with. And if I'd ran into somebody else, for sure I would know who they were. Yeah. You know, that's how tight knit and small the surf community still was. Yeah. And then uh, France had a few more surfers, of course. It was more popular. But even then, God, we were surfing La Fetania and... 10 guys out, Gittery, sometimes just ourselves, or oh, Mickey man. Dora and us, just mm-hmm. the only guys out. Right. Go up to Hasegore, oh, there's six or seven guys out, a little busy, but let's go out anyway. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's like stupid, exactly. crazy. Go to Mendaka, there's five Aussies there, you know. And, <laughs> yeah, you just took it for granted, that's how it was going to be. Yeah, and you know, from our, our travel experiences, you know, the, the traveling was so hard with a surfboard. And, you know, especially if you're doing it on a low budget and stuff. So our thought, our thinking that someplace like Costa Rica or Ireland or some of these other places or Morocco, we're going to get as crowded as as it is now because we've been back to a lot of those places. It just didn't seem... It was incomprehensible. Possible. Yeah, we'd always have like a small crowd because mm. it's just difficult to stay there. Yeah, right. So how do you feel now when you look at these places and you see the, the change? Lucky. Yeah. Uh, you got it. I'm dismayed. Uh, some places I won't go back to. I won't go back to El Salvador. You know, you have such great memories of surfing uh, La Libertad and Zunzal and Concha Leo. You know, why would I go back and spoil it? Yeah. With uh, 50, 60, 100 guys out now. Yeah. And then the last time I uh, actually surfed Bundorn in Ireland, I came out of the water thinking, I, I'm not even going to paddle out here again. I might as well be surfing Malibu or Trestles. Yeah. It feels that crowded. I mean, it's that busy, isn't it's it? It's that aggro busy. So I sort of disillusioned, but at the same time, I'm really, really stoked. Yeah. I had it all those days, you know, when we did back in the back in the day. It was The way it was every bit as good as it is now, but there was just nobody else out there. Yeah, I mean, people listening to this are going to be, you know, it's just, it's the dream. It really is. I mean, so you're still, you're still traveling though, right? Right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So what's that, what that's done with those crowded places is now we're, you know, on the hunt again, you know, exploring yeah. and pushing ourselves. Just, can you turn the mic around. off and we'll tell them where we're going by? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, don't worry. I won't, right. I, won't, I won't be asking for names. Yeah. <laughs> Murder rate is very high in Baja. <laughs> Uh, I go to Fiji every year uh, still, and I like to surf at Tavaru and Cloudbreak. Yeah. Uh, even though it, since they opened it up, it's all gotten crowded there too, but it's a different vibe, and I love it there because uh, it's kind of changed. It's more of a family deal now. I go with my kids. and Yeah. And even though it's lost the hardcore edge of surfing, it's still a good, great place to surf. Yeah. But if we want to get away and relive some of the uh, – you know, salad days that we had, you know, basically Bajas are where we go now. Yeah, you can still find it. We have to look, and it's getting more and more crowded. And, yeah, uh, but it's we harsh. Do, you know, it's, it's harsh. We to, do find it. We do find it. We stay. We go down there and post up and look. And yeah, if you know where to look and know what to do, it's uh, you can still find it in places. Yeah. Um, so how long did this this sort of heyday trip last? You know, uh, the, the, the we, Surfer magazine. I guess if of. you had to bookend it, uh, we had a 10-year run starting in 72, 73 with uh, the articles on Central America. They were followed by articles on Morocco and West Africa and the mid-70s. And then in the late 70s, we did stories on Ireland and France and our travels in Europe. Yeah. So that covered the better part of that decade. And then the other end of the bookend 
was when we um, went to um, break ground at Cloud Break and open up Tavarua. Wow. The surf resort then, that would have been around 83. Okay. So that would have been a 10-year, more or less, bookend for our travels. And then after that, we sort of hung it up. Yeah. And we just uh, still kept traveling, but we didn't want to just keep reliving the uh, things we'd done in the 70s. You know, sure. Now it was the 80s, and we, all, we were all moving on with yeah. our lives and things changing. Life's kicking We don't in. want to just keep rotating what we'd been done. So. Yeah. We, we, we've been traveling ever since. It's just that we haven't been writing many stories about it. We still, over oh, through the 80s and 90s into 2000, we still wrote some stories for Surfer and mm-hmm. uh, and some stuff and for the Journal and on mm-hmm. trips to South trips. Africa. Yeah. Different yeah. kind of trips, though. Not the, not the adventure trips. The shorter kind of ones, stories. you know, two, three weeks, like what <clears throat> most people have time for now because you have jobs and everything. Yeah. The yeah. trips, the big trips we did back then were ones that were like, well, we'd tell our parents we're leaving we're going down to central america but we don't know when we're going to be back exactly yeah you know you'd stay out yeah. as long as you possibly could so yeah. you're doing but, uh, it as cheaply as possible eating peanut butter and sardines yeah. for months and months and you know but yeah. you come back and you got to now buy another car because you sold your car yeah. to get on the road yeah yeah and but, start uh, all over again as a frame of reference though it was a good way to book it and now, now that i think about it because the first trips to El Salvador and Central America, those were totally unexplored surf spots and areas. And then the other extreme, when we went to Fiji and surf cloud break and uh, Tavarua in the 83, 84, that was also totally unknown to the surf world and empty waves and great waves. I mean, i got to ask you about that because that and must have been quite a discovery. It was incredible discovery. And we felt like, oh my God, we can't believe where the early first guys, some of the first, we weren't the very first, but some of the very first guys surfing there and to have those waves at restaurants and cloud break all to ourselves day after day, uh, it was just amazing beyond belief that we would have that kind of experience and have it warm water and South Sea Island kind of idyllic place. Again, we were Still camping on the beach in tents. That was before there was a yeah. resort at Tavarua. So we nothing there at all, literally right? stayed in tents on the beach and then posted up the first stories, the first story, the article, I guess, for Surfer on it. And that coincided with um, surfing just exploding then around the yeah. mid-80s. Around early 84, 85, suddenly surfing just took off all around California and after that, the world, subsequently the world. But yeah, we if you took a look at a line on a graph, it was kind of a flat line through the 70s of all the surfers. There were about the same number and right through the 70s into the early 80s. And all of a sudden, a new generation came of age behind our generation. We were the 70s generation and a whole new generation came of age in the early 80s. And they were just frothing to take up surfing. Yeah. And surfing became like the cool hip thing to do because it had laid the groundwork by being an underground countercultural thing, which all kids are attracted to, of course. Yeah, of course. That's what we represented in the 70s and all the guys going to Mexico and all these places. And then in the 80s, this whole new generation of kids came along and they looked at, well, what do we want to do? Well, let's go, let's try surfing. And it exploded, took off. And then just then the graph would shoot up the line. Yeah. That's when surfing, that's when all the clothing companies were sleepy little mom and pop clothing companies suddenly became multinational corporations you know quicksilver billabong all the big surf companies that's when they're they took off in their heyday then and that's what all it all coincided with um tavarua 
and opening the surf resort. And that sort of, in a way, opened up a whole new era in surfing itself. That was the start of the surf resort. Yeah. The start of the time, the era when surfers would be short on time, but they had cash. Yeah. So unlike us, we'd go for two or three months to try to find a wave. Now surfers would be lucky if they could go for two weeks. Yeah. But they were going to go to a place where they knew they were going to get a wave. Yeah. Like Tavarua, like Cloudbreak. So the whole ethos changed. Everything changed right about then. And now we have all, that's the ethos that we've been living in ever since where surfers get away and do, do a hit and run, go for a week and go to a camp and get a wave. And there's nothing wrong with that. I'm just saying that it's yeah. making a comment how the whole philosophy and ethos changed with that. Well, and, and, for, and, and for us doing, you know, articles for Surfer Magazine, you know, as I mentioned back in the early 70s and stuff, there was, you don't mention any names, you know, of any yeah. places. We didn't yeah, yeah. mention there was El an Salvador. There was, a, there was a kind of way of doing it, wasn't there? Right, exactly. But now here with Tavarua, um, the, the guys who were developing the resort there, they wanted it to be published. Yeah. And so it was like, oh, man, do we really want to do this, you know, as far as like naming it and everything that went against everything that we had grown up around on our surf travel days. Yeah, I'm sure it went against the, your morals, yeah. right? Your principles. Our principles. I don't know about our morals. <laughs> those, maybe, they were left back in some may, foreign may, country. In France. Time. Maybe not the Years morals. earlier. I think they're somewhere hanging around, yeah. drifting yes. around France. They're, they're, in that, they're in that jungle somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> but our principles, yeah, of, of not naming spots, we had to sort of realize, hey, that day has come and gone. This is a whole new, it's a new era now. You yeah. know, it's come and gone. And, but it made us feel like very lucky to be a part of that era. If I had to call any age the golden age of travel, I would the 70s for sure. Yeah. Because of that ethos, because it was still very much a countercultural underground, like almost like a beat generation type of thing where we were yeah. take to the road like Kerouac, except you had a surfboard under your arm. Well, I think that's why it's such a timeless story. And I think, you know, why you've still got people like me turning up at your door and wanting to speak to you about it because it is... It, it, I think you're right. I think it is that timeless, isn't it? And it's just there's a romance, isn't there, about it? Yeah, there is a certain romance, basically, to that. which because yeah. it because it it like you say, it's gone, it's changed. You know, it's it's not possible really now. And um, yeah, I mean, it's the appeal, isn't it? Like you said, when you said yeah. you felt lucky, mm -hmm. I mean, that was, I was I was great because I was like, well, yeah, <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. And surfers could people always always ask us, you know, well, do you think that's still possible these days to? hit the road with a backpack and a surfboard under your arm. And, and yeah, it is, you know, and uh, it might be slightly more dangerous someplace, but yeah. I'm sure there are pockets right now where there's some surfers hanging out in some probably tropical place yeah. who are laughing, saying, we've got this great wave and nobody no, knows yeah, There's guys surfing in Indo now laughing yeah, and guys surfing to the South you know? Pacific. So there are still, still untold on. number of great waves out there and guys we don't even know about yeah. are still carrying on that backpack ethos for surfing. Yeah. So you've got a go, haven't you? So I've got one more question. Um, if you could only surf one of the waves that you discovered, which would it be? Wow, that's a toss-up. The top three would be, uh, oh, there's like the top five. <laughs> Sorry, you're going to be here for 10 minutes now. Can right? I give you a top five? Uh, yeah, go top Libertad, the peak at Bundoran, uh, Hasagor in those good days, Tavru, of course, Cloud Break, and yeah. um, restaurants. Uh, those would be my uh, top, uh, and then also uh, Scorpion Bay before it became known and discovered and crowded. Yeah, I would go back down there in the early late seventies too, and that's when it was one of the great right hand waves of the world. Jeffries Bay, but when I went to Jeffries, it was it was already crowded. Right, it was done. But uh, those were the 
the spots I named were the spots that uh, I had, you know, so fortunately to myself many days. It's quite a CV, isn't it? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It's quite a resume. Just those. Mandaka. God, it goes on and on. (laughs) How does it feel now when you look back? Because obviously there is a, because you guys have, there's been a documentary, you know, about you guys and, there is this interest that, that carries on. How, how does that feel? You know, when, when people are still... Yeah, we're just dinosaurs now. <laughs> Excavators like crow magnum men look at us with curiosity. <laughs> it's quite a legacy though, right? Yeah. 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 It is. You know, it's funny. Uh, uh, we actually don't think about it too much because we are still traveling, looking yeah. for the perfect wave. Um, we're still, you know, making our surf trips and stuff. So we're kind of more forward thinking that way of like, wow, you know, what, where else can we go? What, you know, make plans with trips, you know, with friends, because you realize that's what you really remember in life is those great moments and trips with friends. So keep planning those and keep making those happen. But when people come and talk to us like this here, you know, it's great for us to just relive all of those moments and trips and stories and everything like that so it's a you know sense of pride of course yeah and survival we survived it (laughs) yeah yeah what what were the what were the kind of when you look back what were the sort of sketchiest moments of those years i'd say for myself clearly you know west africa had a lot of a lot of stuff but all i kept arrested there in west africa that was very sketchy uh and getting very sick in west africa thought i was going to die from dysentery and dehydration and then uh getting arrested we had some rough times in in west africa we got had some near close calls in central america as far as getting robbed almost or getting beaten up but we kind of escaped it kind of seemed like every country for a while there it seemed like every country we were going to we were getting shot at or <laughs> arrested you know and thrown into jail yeah. or threatened with it you know like yeah. in west africa we even you know got arrested for you know, by the police on the beach there at Robertsport, and they said that we were uh, uh, spies, that we were going up and down on the waves to generate electric- electrical signals to send to uh, <laughs> coded messages to a South African submarine offshore. Wow. And we actually ended up going into a courtroom wow. that week and having a trial there, mm, and we were looking no. out the window, you know, out there, and it was like, this was the best day of this point. And it was like 11 o'clock in the morning. I still yeah. remember looking out that window. Yeah. That is hilarious. Here they are, you know, p- putting us on trial for... What for, an interpretation yeah. of surfing. To be like, well, obviously what they're doing is sending secret signals to a submarine. Off, yeah, <laughs> I know. Off the coast. I think on most of our travels, our guardian angels were working overtime, really. We got through a lot of stuff unscathed, you know. Yeah. When I think about it, all the stuff we put ourselves out into it was no problem again yeah so you, you know you were describing the change of ethos in surfing and the way the culture's changed like how, how do you feel about it do you think it's anything positive about it ethos e-t-h-o-s <laughs> let's see <laughs> i'm trying to find something good to say <laughs> yeah you're both like, you're both <laughs> kinda like long mm, pregnant silence here that's the toughest question yet. yeah yeah <laughs> nothing good to say it's that hard is. for me to find something uh good to say we we're still meeting teams. people on the road that have the have that true um, you know surf spirit I would say that uh, you know have a cognizance of the world around them the you know the the meeting other new people um, being you know positive um, appreciating nature the way it is so we're still still meeting those people but then there are others that you know show up and it's like gosh these people just came straight from inner you know the city crowded well, breaks and they bring their own well what it is serving is a very territorial type of thing 
And we see that everywhere we go now. We go back to Costa Rica, it doesn't matter if I go to Ireland. It's, guys are there, the locals are hassling anybody they don't recognize right away. It's, it's always been territorial like that. Uh, and that's an unfortunate aspect of the, you know, the way serving's gotten so popular because that goes hand in hand with it. Guys get territorial and want to keep what they have for themselves. Yeah, finite resource. Right, see that a lot. So there's that. That's happening all over the world. You know, yeah, there's no, there's no one country that lay claim to that, and uh, that's how it is now. Yeah. Okay. Final question for you both. Um, could I ask you for a standout memory of of the the travels? Again, it's a tricky one, but um, when you look back, anything leap out as the the kind of thing you remember the most uh one great memory uh we have so many great memories of france i mean on the hitting getting hostagor for three weeks straight best ways you could ever imagine seeing with snow on the beach in the winter and, but one time i was up in the north of ireland to stay in, with alan duke staying there and uh we woke up in the morning and he said ah let's uh you know let's go get some uh there's no rashers or anything for breakfast for tea, so head down to the local shop to get some rashers. And it was right by the ocean, and all of a sudden, there's I see this massive swell had come in overnight. This is before surf forecasts or anything. Nobody had any idea yeah. when when the surf was going to hit. And it had gone from flat and windy the day before to sunny and offshore and massive. <laughs> A whole north coast of uh, Port Rush and all that was closed out. So I just turned to Al and I said right away, hey, we got to get in the car and we got to go right to the peak. Let's go right to Bundoran. It's going to be pumping. And we just did a Chinese fire drill, drank our tea, <laughs> jumped in the car, you know, drove like three hours and get to Bundoran. It was like 11 in the morning then. It was a sunny day, not a cloud in the sky, straight offshore, solid six to eight feet, as good as I've ever seen it. Line stacked to the horizon, not one other car there, wow. nobody. And we just jumped out and we said, we got to take some photos of this just for posterity because it's so magic and there's no one here. So we were throwing our wetsuits and we took some photos and three of us paddled out and we had it all day like that to ourselves as good as I've ever seen it and no one there and a sunny day. So that is a highlight memory amongst Many, many highlight memories. That's the one I really find amusement in because of the all the time it took to jump in the car and drive there and yeah, on I mean, a whim and then get it. Real snapshot of the time as well, right? Yeah. You know? Uh, mine, I would say, is uh, as a Kevin had mentioned uh, about uh, Hasagor. Uh, this was in the fall, and uh, you know we had just connected up with a with a, just a great swell, great conditions offshore for like three or four days. That Von de Sud. And uh, the, um, uh, you know, we just stayed there on the beach, you know, we slept overnight, you know, right on the beach, had a little fire, you know, and um, shared our food with like a couple of other surfers that were a couple from Australia and another guy from England. And uh, just three days of like morning surf and, you know, sleep on the beach again. And then afternoon into beautiful sunset and warm, you know, the water was cool at that point. But uh, still, it's like, wow, if I can get, keep getting that. That yeah. is what it's going to keep me traveling. It's really interesting that you both choose uh, Ireland and France, you know, because you, you, you'd almost expect one of these 
very exotic locations but it just goes to show it's about the wave right it's right about, it's, it, well, it's about the wave but also what's going on on, on shore with friends because yeah. as often people ask me well where's your favorite place you know and i'll often say france because you know it, you can only be in the water for so long yeah and you still got to come ashore at some point yeah of course and then what yeah. you come ashore to is you know like for me, fr- beautiful French women yeah. on shore and the culture and the food. It was like, wow, this is great. It's yeah, expensive, I'm, but it's still great. It's still a great trip, isn't it? Some of these places, you know, Central America or West Africa, yeah, the waves are great there. But when you come ashore, you know, it's like, are you going to, you know, am I going to come down with some malaria or sickness, you know, with this? And it's, it's hot and steamy and whatever. So you're not in a hotel by any means, you know, it's, so it's, uh, it's, it's rougher that way. Yeah. Man, that has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you for having us. We're we're always stoked to tell the stories. Now I'm going to be living in the uh, surf travel days of uh, the 70s and 80s for the rest of my day. Yeah. <laughs> no, thanks so much. It's been brilliant. So there you go. That was my conversation with Kevin and Craig. And I hope you enjoyed that amazing insight into a lost period of surfing's history as much as I did. The two of them could not have been more welcoming. And it was an absolute privilege to hear the story, check it all out and help bring the story to the wider world, really. If you want to head out, find out more about Craig and Kevin, then go and have a look at their website, www.searchfortheperfectwave.com. You need to insert little dashes between every word of that one. Search dash, forward dash, etc. You're going to be able to buy a copy of the volume one of their book, track down the documentary about the duo called The Far Shore. Basically, go and have a look. You're not going to be disappointed. So yeah, Housekeeping Corner, and if you've not got so annoyed that you've unfollowed me, you've probably seen myself and Owen Tozer have been having a pretty amazing time on this trip so far. Got to say, I'm definitely at the gone bush stage of the trip, which is brilliant. So after Mammoth, which I think is where I last left you, headed down to Ventura, where we recorded an episode of my new Type 2 podcast with Belinda Bags. Got right into the entire issue of the Fight for the Bike campaign, which was fascinated. Also scored some small and very fun waves in Ventura actually got sea street to ourselves one morning which must be pretty unheard of from there we headed down to malibu where i recorded an episode of the podcast with my friend jamie brissick and also did some work on a story i'm writing about how malibu is recovering after the fires stayed in an amazing hotel called the malibu beach inn overlooking the pier also bumped into chad from the red hot chili peppers but that's another story Um, we also headed to la for the day to record an episode with legendary skate filmer colin kennedy before heading to Huntington Beach, like I said at the top where I am now, to record this podcast and the next episode in my HB Omnibus with the great Herbie Fletcher. We were lucky enough to be invited to Herbie's Astro Deck HQ and be given the full tour by the first family of surfing. Quite an experience and quite an episode of the podcast, as you're going to hear. Got to thank my friends at Visit California, Huntington Beach and Hertz for the amazing hospitality we've enjoyed on this trip. For a couple of geeks like me and Toza, I mean, it's been brilliant coming to check out such an important stretch of action sports history. We've got a few days left. We're heading to Encinitas and San Diego for the final part of our trip and the final stretch of podcast episodes. And to be honest, the whole trip's gone so well that we're actually thinking of producing a little zine or book about it using Owen's incredible images and uh, some quotes from the episodes. No real reason other than to produce a nice piece of work with which to commemorate the whole trip and say thanks to everyone who's looked after us so well. If you like the sound of that, let me know so I can get an idea of how many copies to print. I mean, if there's enough demand, I'll probably sell them through the shop or something. So let me know over at my Instagram at We Look Sideways. 
or you can email me at podcast at we are looking sideways anyway that's it for this episode i'll be back with part two of the huntington beach omnibus with herbie fletcher soon in the meantime thanks for listening and i'll catch you next time nice one (laughs) 